When I was in both Bible college and seminary, my professors of preaching would often talk at length about the advantages of expository preaching as opposed to topical or textual preaching. Now, expository preaching is what we do here at Mid-Valley Bible Church. It's been the hallmark of this church's ministry. It was the hallmark of Pastor Ken's ministry. And it simply means that you take a book of the Bible or a section of the Bible and you go through it verse by verse and you explain the passage. You find out what the author's intended meaning was, what he's trying to say, and then you apply it to your life. And among the many advantages that the professors would reiterate to us was that expository preaching keeps you from riding a hobby horse. It gives people a balanced diet spiritually. It allows the Bible to speak for itself. But there's another important factor about expository preaching. And that is it forces the preacher to deal with text he otherwise might choose to ignore. I can almost guarantee you that no one in their right mind would choose to preach on the passage before us today unless they were going through the book of Galatians verse by verse. Chances are pretty much non-existent that a guest preacher would choose it for a Sunday sermon unless he wanted to guarantee he not be invited back. I'm pretty sure this passage has never been used for a candidating message. In fact, odds are good this morning that unless you've gone through the book of Galatians, either in a Sunday school or a Bible study or perhaps on a Sunday morning, you've probably never heard a sermon from this portion of Scripture. And the point of this introduction is simply this. No one would voluntarily preach on this passage unless they were forced to, which after having studied it this past week is really a shame. Because as I said last week, while I approach this reluctantly, I now feel pretty good. I was debating at the beginning of this week as I was wrestling with this text whether to pray for a kidney stone or schedule my knee surgery so that Ken could pinch hit for me. Uh, He called up Friday and he said, I take it, you're preaching, right? (laughs) But you know, to understand this very, very complicated biblical argument, there's a couple of things you sort of have to lay as a foundation. I think the first key to understanding this portion of the book of Galatians is you've got to sort of step back and get the big picture of what Paul is trying to communicate in this book. What is his argument up to this point in the book? Well, as we mentioned before, Paul had traveled to Galatia. He had preached the good news about Jesus Christ. He had proclaimed the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb, and he invited people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life and the forgiveness of sins that is provided through Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. And as a result of Paul's evangelistic efforts, people got saved. And new churches were planted. And then shortly thereafter, a group of, quote, Jewish Christian missionaries arrived in Galatia to 
correct Paul's gospel. These men came from Jerusalem and they were trying to get the Gentile Christians there to embrace Judaism. They preached a a legalistic form of Christianity. They said, if you really want to be a good Christian, you will become a Jew. And what happened is they added the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And sadly, the Christians there in Galatia fell under that influence. And they began to squander their newfound freedom in Christ. They began to keep Jewish traditions that were unnecessary for the Christian to keep. They got circumcised and they said that's the way you really get spiritual. Others were saying that it was mandatory to celebrate the Passover and other Jewish festivals. And so in their effort to prove that they were good Christians, these Gentile believers in Galatia were becoming enslaved to all kinds of Old Testament rituals. Now, before you think too poorly of them and are too hard on them, sadly, we often do the same thing today. We often forget that Christianity is a form of liberty and freedom and not slavery. And what happens is we reduce faith in Christ to a list of rules and regulations and traditions. And we end up evaluating our spiritual standing and that of others by what we do for God rather than by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. And we all have a tendency to do that, do we not? I like what one man said. He said, in truth, we are all recovering Pharisees. I like that. And you know what? If we're not careful, we will be in constant danger of forgetting that we live by faith. And many times we, we choose to go back under the law or, or the the regulations that someone else might try to foster upon us rather than living in the grace and freedom that is ours. And Paul, realizing that danger in order to persuade the Galatians that they were free from the law, writes this letter. And drawing upon his rabbinic training, he sets out a detailed argument to support the truth that you and I are saved by faith alone. And he uses scripture and history and logic and their experience. And after all of these arguments, he gives a a personal plea that we looked at last week, beginning in verses 12 and following. And he says, "I'm, I'm pleading with you, please, please become like me. Don't fall into the trap of legalism. I'm free from the Mosaic law. I've experienced Christian liberty. I've experienced freedom in Christ. And I want the same for you. And then he ends that passionate plea with the the desire of his heart when he says, I want Christ to be formed in you. And he says in verse 20 of Galatians 4, he says, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone. I feel like I've, I've beat you over the head with a hammer because I'm perplexed about you. I, I just can't understand why you would want to live under legalism. And then 
just before moving into the practical section of the book, which will start, as I mentioned, after Labor Day, he's going to make one final point in the form of an illustration that sort of puts a capstone on his case. And what he says here is, I want you to look at the life of Abraham as it relates to two women who gave him two sons because they illustrate precisely what it is I'm trying to communicate. He says in verse 21, he says, tell me now. Listen up. You who want to be under the law, are you not aware of what the law says? You know, we could paraphrase that by saying, so you want to be under the law, do you? Do you guys really have any idea what the law really says? Because if you did, you'd realize that the law itself tells you, and the very life of your hero Abraham illustrates it, that you are not under the law. I love how he argues with the legalist on their terms. And he takes an example out of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, namely Abraham who, by the way, is mentioned eight times in this letter. And by mentioning him, I, I think it's safe to say that these Judaizers claimed the father of the Jews as their hero. And so before Paul could help these Galatians understand that they were to live, live in freedom and liberty in Christ, he has to correct their interpretation of Abraham, And he uses a, a Jewish argument to convince the Galatians not to become more Jewish. These people probably said, you know, when God first made all of his covenant promises, he said they were only for Abraham and his children. And we, we're, we're children of Abraham because we have a direct descendants through Isaac. And you can receive all of those blessings as well if you'll become a child of Abraham in the Jewish way by getting circumcised. And as I said, this is a, is a challenging passage of Scripture. But I'm confident that when we're done, it's really going to make a lot of sense. And what makes this challenging is I want you to look at verse 24. It says, at least in the NIV, it says, these things are being taken figuratively. He says, the woman represents two covenants. I want to suggest that the NIV here is an excellent translation. When it uses the word figuratively. And the problem was that many translations, the King James, the New American Standard, the ESV, say allegorically speaking. Or Now, this may be interpreted allegorically. I want everybody to sit up, put your thinking caps on. If anything goes over your head, just sit up a little straighter. Because you see, the problem here is that that word figuratively is the Greek word allegoreo. And interestingly, this is the only place it's used in the entire Bible. 
And an allegory, I've got to tell you, is something that really puts the panic into the heart and mind of any Bible interpreter. Because by definition, we've given that word allegory a definition that says that an allegory is a story, either fictional or true, where the primary and fundamental meaning, the lesson to be learned, is not to be found in the story itself, but in something deeper. Now, did you get that? We wrote it in your outline. It's a story. Fictional or true, the meaning of which is not found in the story. We might say it negatively, that on its face, the story itself is meaningless. The truth of that story is found in something deeper. And, and unless you're told what that deeper, significant meaning is, you're clueless. You see, allegories, as we've understood and defined them, are always uh, a hidden, secret, covert sign of deeper, uh, more significant meaning than what's on the surface, what's plainly in sight. And for an allegory to communicate to us, we have to know the secret, deeper, hidden, almost mystical meaning. John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress is an allegory. And the danger to an allegory is, of course, that you can read almost anything into any story in the Bible. And many do. And they come up with some pretty wild, off-the-wall ideas. Now, the problem here is that instead of translating that word allegoreo, they transliterated it. And they simply put the word allegory there. In other words, they took the Greek word and gave it an English sound. And what they really should have done, which I think would have made much more sense, as I'll mention in a moment, is that they should have translated it. You say, okay, Doug, you're so smart. What does allegoreo mean? Well, it's a word that's made up of two Greek words. One, agoreo, which means to speak in public, and the other is the word alas, which means another. And when you put those two together, alagoreo, it simply means to speak of one thing by referring to another. It was used of a story that conveys a meaning beyond the literal sense of the word. In other words, what I would like to suggest this morning is that this is not on its face an allegory as we commonly define an allegory. What you find here is simply an illustration. And Paul is using a literal historical event from the Old Testament to teach and illustrate a spiritual truth. The story of Abraham, Sarah, Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac are actual historical events. And you know what? There's no hidden meaning. 
How many of us have, have had people read the Bible and, you know, they'll tell a story and they'll say, now, this means this and this means that. And you're looking at it and you'll say, wow, what insight. You know what I want to say? What an imagination. Because that's not what it means. I want to suggest that what Paul is doing here is simply giving us an illustration to support the contrast he's making between law and grace, between a life of freedom in Christ and a life of slavery to the law, living after the flesh versus living after the spirit. And you know what he's going to tell us? You can't mix the two together. And any attempt to do so, folks, ends in chaos and dysfunction. In other words, there's nothing in the Bible that has this deep, secret, hidden meaning. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't figures of speech and symbolism, but I believe that if you're going to interpret the Scriptures, the way you interpret the Scriptures is in their literal, historical, grammatical sense. And you just read it. And you take it at face value. And what's unfortunate is that far too often people go to the scriptures and they start reading into the scriptures all kinds of things. Probably the classic example of that would be the Song of Solomon in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with that book, you know that it's a book that elevates the, the love between a husband and a wife, the physical love that is theirs, to its highest level. And sometimes people read that and they cringe and they think, oh man, that is what, much too graphic. graphic. You know what this is really talking about? Is Jesus Christ and his love for the church. No? That's not what it's talking about. And here's my point. Paul is giving us an illustration where the account is not fictional, it's not fanciful, it wasn't made up, it's an historical event. And what he's doing is he's giving us a powerful, vivid illustration about the compelling dangers of mixing together human works and efforts versus divine promises and faith. What has been Paul's main point up to this point in his letter? Well, namely, that the just shall live by faith. And he has presented that argument very convincingly. Not going to go back and review all those points, but friend, the issue is settled. And Paul doesn't revisit it in this narrative. What he does is he illustrates the absolute disastrous results, the total dysfunction that ensues when you try to mix together man's way with God's ways. When you try to mix human effort with the promises of God, the two cannot commingle together. And so what he does after asking his question in verse 21 is Paul summarizes in two verses. Can you believe it? Two verses, verses 22 and 23. Ten chapters from the book of Genesis. 
and 28 years from the life of Abraham. That's amazing. I mean, he just, he just says, all right, here's what happened. Now, for the benefit of us, I want to go back and I want to revisit it somewhat in detail. And I want to do so by the, by the age that is mentioned regarding Abraham. Because when you go back to Genesis chapter 12, and these are events that are talked about in Genesis 12 through ver- chapter 21. In Genesis 12, Abraham and Sarah, at the age of 75 and 65 respectively, are both physically old. Up to this point, they had had no kids. But God nonetheless comes to them and tells them to get up, to leave the land that they were living, to go to a land that God was promising, going to promise them. And he says, I'm going to make of you a great, great nation. Well, they get there, and 10 years pass. Abraham is 85 years old. His wife is barren. Neither he nor her are getting any younger. And that promised son is yet to arrive. And I'm sure that there were mornings that he looked in the mirror and he saw the face of a wrinkled old man and a white bearded man, maybe with a balding spot, who knows. And he looked in the mirror and he had his doubts. And as hard as it was for him, it was even harder on his wife. She was praying for kids. And God wasn't answering her prayers. And so finally, in bitter desperation, she suggests that her husband, Abraham, take her Egyptian handmaid and that he go into her and that they have relations together and that she would become the mother of his child. Now, friend, we cringe at that with good reason. But that's what they did back in that day. But you know what? That was not what God had promised. That was not God's way. What they were doing is they were acting in the flesh. They were acting according to human reasoning. They had the notion of many people today who said, well, you know, God helps those who help themselves. So I've got to take it upon myself to do this and that. And so Abraham marries Hagar. And one year later, when Abram's 86 years old, she's become pregnant. And what happens is that Sarah understandably is jealous. What woman wouldn't be? Friend, God's plan was never for a man to have more than one wife. I can't imagine why anybody would want more than one. Just love one. You will be more than happy. All it does is cause problems and jealousy and heartache. But you know what? God tolerated in the Old Testament men taking more than one wife. He put up with it. Well, the division between these two women becomes so great that Sarah insists that Hagar be thrown out of the house. And Abraham goes along with his wife's suggestion. Sarah makes Hagar's life so miserable that she leaves. She's given the heave-ho. And so Hagar, who's pregnant, is thrown out on the street, and she makes her way out into the desert, anticipating death. 
But fortunately for her, God intervenes. He sends her back with a promise to take care of her and her son. He says, I want you to name him Ishmael, which means God hears. And he says he's going to be a wild man. By the way, do you know where the Arabs come from? Yeah. Ishmael. If you're taking notes, jot down Genesis 16, 12. Fascinating the description of his descendants, what he was like. And now we know why the Arabs, and I'm not meaning this in a pejorative negative way, it's simply a statement of fact, why, why they are the way they are. Well, she returns a short time later, gives birth to a son, and she names him Ishmael. And for 13 years, he rules the roost. He's running the show. You know, I can't help but think that maybe Abraham thought, maybe this is God's answer. Maybe, maybe this, after all, was God's will for my family. But when he's 99 years old, God appears to him and says, Abe, come over here, old buddy, old pal, old pal. You're going to be a daddy. And the baby's mama is going to be Sarah. Wow. That'd blow your mind. God says, that was my plan all along. And I'm sure that Ishmael brought not only joy and delight to the heart of Abraham, but also probably to Sarah as well. But that wasn't God's promise. And God says his name is going to be Isaac. God appears to Sarah as well and tells her that she's going to have a baby. And when Abraham is 100 years old, 25 years since God first gave him the promise of that he and Sarah were going to have a baby. She has a baby. And they name him just as God told them to name him. They name him Isaac. But what happens is that Isaac's arrival creates some problems in the home. For 13 years, Ishmael had been the center of attention. He was probably spoiled rotten. And his disposition that I talked about probably didn't help things. But now Sarah has her own son. And that son was the result of believing the promises of God, of having faith in God. And things are going along okay until Abraham's 103 years old and Isaac is three years old. Now, ladies, don't shoot the messenger, okay? But back then, it was customary for a Jewish mother to wean their children when they were three years old. I don't think too many moms today would object to that. But I don't want to get in trouble with anyone who may want to go longer. But here's the point that's telling. When, when little Isaac was weaned from his mother... They threw a great big party. All the women are saying, right on. Most moms I know would go along with that. But what happened is that at the party, at the festival, Ishmael, 17 years old, starts picking on little Isaac, three years old. It says in Genesis 21, verses 8 and following, that he began to mock him. The Hebrew word there means to jest, to sport, to play, 
to tease, to make a toy of. And Sarah sees it and she goes ballistic. Here's this 17-year-old picking on her little three-year-old boy. And there's only one solution. And it was a costly one, it was a painful one, it was a hurtful one. And that is that Hagar and her son have got to go. And I'm convinced that Abraham with a broken heart sends his son and his wife away. Was it hard? You betcha. Was it painful? I think it was among the hardest things he had ever done up till now. But you know what? It was the right thing to do. And by the way, don't forget that he brought all of this on himself. He was acting in the flesh when he listened to his wife. Now, when you read those verses in in Galatians 4, verses 22 and 23, it appears that this is just the story of this dysfunctional family. But you know what Paul does? He takes that story, and I love this, and like a, a good preacher, as he comes to the end of his really difficult teaching, he throws in a great illustration to sort of drive his point home. And what he says is that these two women, these two mothers of these two boys represent two spiritual realities, two approaches to God. They teach some incredibly important lessons that you and I need to learn. Look at verse 24. He says, these things are being taken figuratively. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Zion. Sinai. Boy, I'm in trying to hurry. Verse 25. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, Be glad, barren woman. You who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud. What he's saying here is figuratively, illustratively, these two women represent two ways of approaching God. Man's way versus God's way. Acting according to the flesh as opposed to the spirit. Spirit. In other words, he's putting this story out there for comparative purposes. Now, I am going to bless your socks off in a moment by showing you a PowerPoint presentation that I put together. This probably ought to be in the PowerPoint Hall of Fame. No, I'm just kidding. But what it does is it draws a contrast. This isn't anywhere near as good as the PowerPoints that Pastor Ken does. But what he's doing here is he's drawing a contrast between two ways of approaching God. All right, are you ready? Ta-da! What do you think? 
This is two ways of approaching God. I hope you can read it. It's a contrast. These are the things that Paul is talking about here. He's saying there's two ways of trying to get righteousness. One is by law. The other is by faith. One results in slavery. The other results in freedom. And what he's saying here is that Hagar represents slavery. She gave birth to a son who was born by proxy and it was a natural birth. It represents the old covenant of the law, the earthly Jerusalem. It represents Judaism. It represents slavery to the law and self-reliance. Whereas faith, obedience to God, doing things God's way, approaching God the way he calls us to, results in a righteousness by faith. Sarah is the free woman Her son Isaac was born by promise. It was a supernatural birth. It was the new covenant of grace. It's the heavenly Jerusalem. It's Christianity. It's freedom in Christ. And it comes about by divine dependence. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, folks, I want you to see the disastrous consequences of what will happen when people try to Please God through human effort. All you're going to do is cause problem after problem after problem. That's what this passage is all about. Paul is saying here in this illustration, this is what you see when you try to mix law and grace There's always going to be a battle that goes on. Now, what's the application of all of this? Look at verses 30 and following. It says, what does the scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son. I think the King James says, cast out the bondswoman. Throw her out the door. Pretty tough. Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. You know what he's saying here in this? Salvation by works, by obedience to the law, by human effort, cannot coexist with salvation by grace through faith alone. And you know what? People are forever trying to mix the two together. And you know what happens when you do? All you end up with is a dysfunctional family. You end up with heartache, and it is a disaster. You know what he's telling us? He's telling Mid-Valley Bible Church, if false teachers come into this church... And they're more than welcome to come. But if they come and they begin to propagate their error, they got to go. They're out the door. Furthermore, if you want to divide a church, if you want to make for a church full of unhappy, miserable, joyless, barren, frustrated people, 
Just introduce legalism into it. Start setting all kinds of rules for conduct and tell people what they can and cannot do, how they have to do this or that. And you know what happens? You end up with a dysfunctional church family. And you know what the solution is, as painful as it may be, is throw them out, get rid of them. Now, please understand, I'm not suggesting that there ought not be standards in the church, but those standards must be biblical. They're not our personal preferences. Candidly, what are my convictions? What are the things that I choose to live by? The standards that Connie and I have chosen to embrace and put into practice in our life may not be applicable to you. And so my personal preferences, I'm not going to force upon you. And conversely, don't try to put your convictions onto me. See, the problem is many worship those standards. And they think that they're spiritual because they obey them. And they judge others by those standards. And just to make you realize that I'm not suggesting that we have sort of a carefree, anything goes attitude. I want you to look at verse 13 of chapter 5, which we're going to look at again in a couple of weeks. He says, You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Boy, we're going to talk about that at length. Now, here's the point. This story that Paul gives at the end of chapter 4 illustrates it, it proves that it is impossible for law and grace, for the flesh and the spirit to coexist together. There's no such thing as detente. There's no such thing as an easing of tensions. You can't mix together God's gift of righteousness with man's attempt to earn righteousness. There's no joy. You have no freedom if you do that. And joy is one of the hallmarks of the Christian life. I think that in part is what he says in verse 27. He says, For it is written, Be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child. Shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate women than of her who has a husband. You know what the takeaway here is? It's simply this. Thank God we've been set free from not only the curse of the law, but also the control of the law. And it may be that you're here this morning and you're thinking, well, I'm going to work to gain God's favor, God's acceptance. Friend, can I remind you, it cannot be done. You're in spiritual slavery. And if you want to be free this morning, you need to ask God for the gift of his grace. And you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then you'll be able to join with all his sons and daughters. And say as he says at the end of this section, Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful so much for this passage of Scripture where Paul has given to us a rich and powerful illustration of the superiority of grace and freedom in Christ 
versus the legal fleshly work system that was so dominant there in Galatia. We pray that we would realize that before you, we are spiritually dead. We are blind. We cannot resurrect ourselves. We cannot believe apart from the Spirit of God working. And so, Father, I pray that if there's anyone here who's yet to put their faith and trust in Christ, I pray that you would move in their hearts and draw them to yourself. We pray that you would seal these marvelous, marvelous truths to our heart. But more importantly, may we leave here not just with a, uh, an understanding of what this passage is saying. We pray, Father, that we would live it out in our life and that we would leave here rejoicing and thankful and happy for what you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people agreed and said, Amen.